following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Well, as I prayed, it, it is a tremendous privilege this morning to talk about the concepts and the words that some of which have become the very foundation of my life, things that have rocked me and turned my own world upside down. That's what happens, you know, when God wakes us up, when God sobers us. He doesn't leave us alone. God doesn't just come down and and tell us what to do. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to transform people, to transform them, to to transfer them from one thing to another. To transform us into children of light. To, To transform us into people who can really live for something. To transform us and 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 transfer us into a kingdom for which there is true life. To help us realize that in Jesus, because of Jesus, through Jesus, we can really live for something. We can be spent for something in our lives. Something that will last. To not waste our lives. To not fritter away our lives on the world's pursuits. To not be a waste, but to be spent for something, something eternal. Can you imagine that? I hope so today. I, I, I hope, not through my words, but I hope God through his word would, would do that in you today. That if you need to be sobered up from the intoxications of this world, that he would do that. And then if you need to be woken up, that he would, he would do that. That he would lift your eyes to the life, Christian, that you were meant to live. That he would illuminate our imaginations and help us to really see it. Help us to see it and, and, and to get it somewhere deep down inside. And that if need be, that he would actually transform you. That he would actually change you into this kind of person. This kind of person who would truly have life. Because outside of Jesus... As we will see today, there is no life. There is no life outside of faith in Him. That is the only way that life comes to anyone in this world is through faith in Jesus Christ. Getting ahead of myself here. Um, The Thessalonians, we're in chapter 5 of Thessalonians, and they were convinced that the Lord was going to return soon. Um, In fact, their expectation was vivid. I mean, it was unrestrained. He could come any day and they were ready for it. They knew it was coming. It filled their thoughts. It filled their lives. This thought dominated their lives. Um, Some of them probably went too far, quit their jobs because of it. Um, but for the most part, they were filled with a very admirable zeal, a very admirable, vivid imagination, a vivid expectation of the Lord's return. Very admirable. And it sounds quite alien to us, really, when we read about them. 
But they were really the prototype for what the writer to the Hebrews was talking about. At the end of Hebrews 9, he says that someday the Lord will return, not to deal with sin again, but for those who are eagerly waiting for him. They, they were eagerly waiting for their Lord to return. And then somebody died. Someone amongst their midst, someone in their midst died. This was difficult enough in and of itself. Maybe they just died, but it's likely that they died because of persecution. Persecution from just their neighbors in the city of Thessalonica. Either way, it was like a grenade going off in their theology, in their expectation of the Lord's return. First, well, okay, well, what will happen to him when the Lord returns? Is, is he going to miss out on the Lord's return? No, Paul says in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, we looked at this um, on New Year's Day the last time we were in Thessalonians. He's, he says, and let me, let me, before I say what he says, let me just read Paul. So let's look at verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4. And I'm going to read all the way down through verse 11 of chapter 5. Starting in verse 13 of chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In your grief, he's saying, encourage one another with these words. Chapter 5. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The word of the Lord. So back in chapter 4, Paul says, In your grief, encourage one another with these words, that this dead loved one and anyone else like him, they'll get there first when the Lord returns. They go first. So don't worry about them. 
Yes, grieve. Grieve. Christians, grieve. But in your grief, never let hold of, never let go, keep holding on to that truth. Never let go of it. The dead in Christ will rise first. And because Christ has died for us, we will always live together with Him. What a truth. What a truth in our grief. In a very important sense, he says, our life is still yet to come. (laughs) This ain't it. (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, then what about us now? So they've written a letter previously to Paul, and he's answering questions in chapter 4 and chapter 5. They've asking him another question. Well, what about the details then? So what do we do now? So when is he going to return? Three months, six months, tomorrow? When? Because, because depending on when he's going to return, Paul is sensing their thinking. Uh, okay, then do I quit my job or not? And do I, do, you know, how do I, how do I order my life? If it's going to be five years, I guess I'll do something different than if it's going to be five days. So Paul senses, uh, a little bit of confusion in their thinking, in their question. Um, but, pastor that he was, Paul doesn't want them to overcorrect, overcorrect in the other direction. He doesn't want them to lose this, this vivid expectation, this vivid anticipation of the Lord's return. So, his purpose here is to help them in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, to help them live with clarity today while still keeping this this vivid expectation of his return tomorrow. Well, we'll get to Paul's answer in a minute, what this looks like. But for a moment, let's let's be honest with ourselves. Um, all this, as I'm describing the, the Thessalonians and this vivid anticipation, I, I have to say, it, this is not us. <laughs> right? It seems so alien. It almost seems, I don't know, almost childish to modern American ears. You know, because we, we we hear the the stories about the, you know, the this just happened recently, right? Some fella that said the Lord's supposed to return on this day, and people sell their homes, and it's embarrassing, you know. Hear this on the news, it's embarrassing. What dumb people, you know? How could they be so brainless? How could they get caught up in this? Well, yeah. But we have the same problem. It just takes a different form. We, we're not, in many ways, ordering our lives around the Lord's return properly either. Those people weren't ordering their lives properly around the Lord's return, but many times we don't either. It just takes a different form. For some of us, the day of the Lord, when it comes, will be one big spoiler some of us look forward to that day the way a kid looks forward to the lifeguard blowing the whistle for everyone to get out of the pool. Those things we take refuge in are just too much fun. <laughs> the intoxicating things of life, the, the intoxicating places where we take refuge. We, we all take refuge somewhere. That is universal amongst humanity because life is hard. So we take refuge somewhere. The question is not if, the question is where. Where do we take refuge? So sometimes it can be the intoxicating next promotion at work and the trappings of respect and privilege that come with it. Sometimes success is just this sweet nectar. Oh, it is so sweet. 
And it helps us to be able to live a life that never really faces who we really are before God. Um, the peace and security of a good, solid nest egg, the admiration of my peers, those are the refuges we often go to in life. We take refuge in things other than God. Yes, there are, there are real trials, real troubles. We need to take refuge somewhere. The Thessalonians were experiencing real trials, real troubles. The question is where? Too often we self-medicate by intoxicating ourselves. Maybe it's not success or when success dries up, maybe it's you know the usual sus- suspects. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, entertainment. Um, or maybe it's more subtle, like shopping <laughs> or remodeling. You ever find yourself saying, I'm just going to watch the next 15 minutes of this show on HGTV. You know, three hours later, you're catatonic on the couch. Um, and two weeks later, there's a backhoe in the backyard. You know? <laughs> That's half a joke, right? There's something to that. We take refuge there. We take refuge in a new glorious backyard. Or maybe it's the next cool app on my iPhone. And materialism, oh. Many of us are going to watch a game today where there's commercials and the commercials have their own commercials leading up to the commercials. Oh, it's amazing. Maybe it's the rush of gossip or the rush of working out or maybe it's just that pharisaical drink called being better than the next guy. Or for others, it's not that you're intoxicated by the world. You're just lulled to sleep by it. Because like I said, life is hard. And for some of us, it keeps doing this and it keeps doing this and it doesn't stop and it doesn't stop. And you just want to go to sleep. You just want to turn it off. I get that. I get that. Life is hard. Sometimes we just want to turn it off and go to sleep. What's the trouble with all this? The trouble is that Jesus died for Christians and will return for Christians because his grace has transformed them. We're made new for something else. We've been made new for something else. So we need to sober up. We need to wake up. We need to lift our eyes again to that coming day and to live in light of that coming day. Folks, we, we need to order our lives around that coming day. We will get more into that a little bit later, what that means. But I'll just say now, we need to order our lives around that coming day. Some of us need tweaking. Some of us need a wholesale restructuring, top to bottom. So how do we do this? Well, Paul's answer is simple. This is our big point today. Paul's answer is simple. To remember the future and our part in it, and to live out of who we really are in Jesus Christ. I'll say it again. To remember the future and our part in it, and to live out of who we really are in Jesus Christ. So we're going to break this out into three different um, observations today. 
very simple ones. Because the text before us is pretty straightforward. Paul's being very straightforward with the Thessalonians. He's not being very complicated. The first observation is this. Remember the coming sudden destruction. Remember the coming sudden destruction. What a cheerful first sermon point. (laughs) But that's the way Paul starts chapter 5. And you know what? It's actually vital that we start here. Paul's not doing random here. It's actually quite vital that we start here to remember the coming sudden destruction. I'll read it again, verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. What's fascinating about Paul's answer to their question to me is how little he says and what he actually does say and what little he says. Paul says that the end will come suddenly, like the thief breaking in, gives no warning. This doesn't mean that it will be night everywhere, that it will be night some places and not others. Paul is just saying that it will be a great surprise to the peoples of the earth. They won't see it coming. Why? Well, because, as we've been talking about in the common trials of life, those who are of the night by nature take refuge in things that are in darkness to make them feel peaceful and secure. They will be like a pregnant woman who goes into labor and never having given it a single thought. You know, it's just a crazy concept to think, you know. You know nine months is coming, but you don't ever think of the fact that you don't know the exact moment when those labor pains will come upon you. That is how this world operates. That is how a person in darkness lives their life because that is their nature. That is who they are. How is this? How does the world get to this point? Well, what they take refuge, what gives them peace and security, actually does two things. This is in verses 6 and 7. Their refuges intoxicate them and lull them to sleep. In the world's drunken stupor, Jesus' second coming will seem like a great shock. They won't see it coming. So it will come suddenly. But it will also come sovereignly. It will also come sovereignly. God will see to it that no one escapes. Surprised or not, once the labor pains begin, the mother is all in. There's no turning back. There's no getting out of it. You know, we we in America, we we have um, neutered, emasculated the salvation of God into something like you know, from an old British BBC sitcom. You know, the, the, the country vicar, hat in hand, knocking at the door of our hearts. Hello, may I come in? Can we have tea? Can I save you from our broken relationship? <laughs> Sorry for the bad British accent. <laughs> yes, there, there is a broken relationship. But that is just a euphemism for we are sin. And God is righteous, and God is full of justice, and He will come once again with wrath upon all sin. That is what we are being saved from. 
Yes, he is full of love, but he is also full of righteousness too. Yes, he is full of grace, and he is seeking the lost, but he is also full of wrath, total, extreme anger against all unrighteousness. His love is steadfast and endures forever, but as Exodus 34 says, he will by no means clear the guilty. And so one day soon he will come and he will bring destruction. Not the destruction of souls, but the destruction of everything that makes life worth living. Everything where the peoples of the earth take their refuge. What is that? Well, maybe we should ask, actually, not what is it, but what is it not? Someone once said, our hearts are idol factories and we can make an idolatrous refuge out of anything. God is coming and bringing total destruction upon everything that makes life worth living. God, the sovereign, righteous king, will be ruined to it all. Now, some may ask, if we are sin, and God is wrathful upon all sin, how do you Christians get out of this? Something doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. Only by Christ at the cross. Jesus taking upon himself God's wrath in our place as our substitute. That is the only way anyone will ever escape this wrath. The only way someone escapes this wrath is if Jesus died in their place and took that wrath for them. So the question today, has Jesus died Has he taken God's wrath for you? The question is not, has he done that? Has he done that for you? The only way that's appropriated to anyone, the only way anyone ever gets that, gets that transfer, gains that substitute, is by what? By faith. By faith and through God's grace. Just faith, just grace. You can't earn it. So before I go any further, I I need to say this. Uh, Paul is seeking to gently encourage them, (laughs) not fright them into obedience in this passage. (laughs) I think I need to say that at this point. Um, It would be easy to think of Santa Claus here. You know, you better obey. Because if you don't obey, when Santa Claus comes, you're going to get a coal. Uh, That's not Paul's tack here, as I hope will become clearer as we go along. But the facts are facts. And the reality is that Christians are those who will one day be raised from the earth and saved with Christ, saved, saved with each other to Christ from great and right wrath. We can't understand grace without understanding this. If we don't understand this, we don't get grace. Because grace is amazing. It is amazing because God is coming to judge all unrighteousness, to rain wrath down upon all sin. And you and I have been taking refuge in our lives in the very same places that all those other people do. We've done all those same things. We are no different. We're no different. We too have sought peace and security in all the wrong places. Some of us for nearly a lifetime. We too have loved the darkness and hated the light. We too have done all those things for which he is coming to judge and rain down wrath. We deserve it as much as they. Grace. 
Grace is, is grace is amazing, utter, sovereign grace because it is sovereignly total. Brought by that same God who in his total wrath chooses, deigns to have grace upon some. Amazing grace. It should awe us. It should... I was thinking about this earlier. As Nathan and the team was singing, I thought, how am I going to even say anything when I get to this point? I'm going to stop talking. God, give me grace to keep talking because I have to give a sermon. I can't just stand here and not say anything. That psalm that Nathan um, uh, read earlier, Psalm 30, there's a line in there that you don't understand it unless you understand grace. God said, the, the, the writer says, uh, um, you, you bring forgiveness. You bring forgiveness that you may be feared. How does forgiveness bring fear? Fear of God. Because when we understand what we've been forgiven of, when we understand what we've been saved from, it brings awe, speechless awe. God is not gracious with anyone because he needs to be. He doesn't need to be gracious. God is gracious because in his righteous wrath, God is gracious. God is gracious. And this grace transforms us. Changes us. Makes us new people. We're no longer us. See how he is? <laughs> well, this leads us to our second point. <clears throat> Remember who you are. Remember who you are. When I was in high school, before I would go out with my friends, my dad would always look at me and say, Son, remember, you're a brown. <laughs> I always had to think a little bit about, what does that actually mean? You know, uh, Okay. Made me think about certain things about my identity. Paul is taking this passage and reminding them who they are. He does that before he tells them what to do. Remember who you are. So I, I want us to see that this point is really at the, the center of the passage. Um, look at the flow of thought with me from verse 5 to 6, and then again from 7 to 8. He says, verse 5, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who are asleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, this is who you are, Christian, let us be sober, having, been, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So do you see what he's doing here? He first says what we are, and then from that, out of that, because of that, he says what we should do. He is demonstrating a vital truth of the Christian life. This is vital. A core principle of seeking for holiness in this life. This is the principle that is, this is what I was referring to earlier when I say, just turn my life upside down. Flip me over and turn me inside out. Our activity follows our identity. Our identity determines our activity. See it again in verses 9, 10, and 11. 
Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are a people destined for salvation. Verse 10, for who died for us. We are a people God is for. So much so that he gave his own son to die for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, here again is the do, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. A Christian is not a person who is just trying to conform to the person of Jesus Christ. A Christian is someone who has already been transformed spiritually by the amazing grace of God in the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. We become like Christ because we've already been united with Christ. That's why. We can't help it. We're new. In verse 4, he says, we are not in darkness. In verse 5, he says, we are children of light. We are not people who will be surprised by that day because we are children of that day. Our new birth will be finally complete on that day. Only on that day will we be finally fulfilled. Fulfillment doesn't come now. It comes then. Our life is not here. It's coming then. It's as if we've been reborn to breathe the air of another planet. We want that day to come because our life, Jesus, will come that day. And our life comes because God has destined us for it, Paul says. Let's think about this. Let it, let it soak in a bit. In verses 8, 9, and 10, God destined us not for wrath, but to obtain salvation. And having been destined for it, that salvation comes to us because Jesus died for us that we might live with Him. There is only life in one place. There is no other refuge found in any place but in Him. In the death and future coming of Christ Jesus for us. But let's turn it over and look at it from another side. The way Paul puts it, we are not destined for wrath. When it comes to the subject of wrath, God has done away with that for all of his children. Wrath is done. Do you understand that? Wrath is done. Now, are there consequences for the sins of Christians in this life? Yes. Never wrath. Never wrath. There will not be wrath on that day. And even for Christians, God even uses our own sin to turn us back to him. Not so with this world. God gives this world over to those things that they take refuge in. Not on us. Our new identity is found here. It's found here at the cross. Christ dying for us in our place. And it is found there at his return. Francis Schaeffer once said, the, two most, the three most important days in the life of a Christian are the day of the cross, the day of the Lord's return, and today. That's where we live. That's where our identity is found. You are a child of the King, and that King is so for you that He gave His own Son to die for you. It's amazing. This is your identity, that God is for you.
We are now transformed and free. We now sit on the other side of the Red Sea. The waters are no longer parted. And there is no going back to Egypt. We are free to live the life we were meant to live. We were transformed and designed to live in Christ. So we are transformed and free. Well, before we go to our final point, I must ask, have you been transformed and freed? A person only receives this again in Christ. So I come back to you again and say, trust Christ. Trust him and turn from your sins. Turn from those things that intoxicate you, that lull you to sleep. Which leads us to our third point. We're to remember this coming sudden destruction. We're to remember who we are. And then, Christian, live the life you were transformed to live. Number three, live the life you were transformed to live. I recently read an article about a hospice care nurse um, in either New Zealand or Australia who spends most of her time with people in the last two weeks of their life. For 16 years, she's written down their greatest regrets as they were dying. She's recorded them and compiled them. Can you guess what the most common one is? I, I guessed, uh, I wished I would have worked less. I wish, that, I, I guess, that would be my first guess. That was number two. Number one, the most common regret was not living the life that they were made for. Instead, living the life that other people expected of them. That's fascinating. Living, not living the life they were made for, instead living the life people expected of them. There's much to be said about that, but what a tragedy. What a waste. What a waste to be a privileged child of the king and live your life never enjoying those privileges. What a waste to, to fritter away our lives taking refuge in the intoxicating comforts of this world. What a waste. What a waste of the faithfulness of God to live in fear and take cover in money and possessions. What a waste of the steadfast love of God to take matters in my own hands and, and get love for myself and go shopping. What a waste. What a waste of this strong hope of my salvation to live my life according to the way the world says I should live and the way the world expects me to live. What a waste. And yet, I will say, there's grace for waste, too. <laughs> um, if I'm catching you, this sermon, if, this, if these words are catching you on the back end of your life, and you're saying, yeah, that, that's actually me, um, there's grace for that, too. God's grace is just as amazing for that too. God can restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. Don't waste them. What does this look like? What, what does it look like to live the life we were transformed to live? We were made to live. How do we wake up? How do we break out of the intoxication of this world? How do we keep from being lulled to sleep? Well, Paul gets more specific. Yes, our identity determines our activity. And Paul says our identity, 
of those for whom Jesus Christ is coming one day to save demands, determines that we live life soberly and with alertness. Soberly and with alertness, he says. And then he explains a little more. To be, to be sober and alert means to live life increasingly free of the intoxicating, sleep-inducing darkness of this world. That's the, the putting off part. And the putting on part is to increasingly pursue faith, love, and the hope of salvation. I, I need things simple. And I, I love it about God's Word when He boils it down so that I can understand it. <laughs> and Paul says, he's essentially saying, whatever it is, whatever it is that lulls you to sleep or intoxicates you, the putting on always seems to go back to faith, hope, and love. Paul always comes back to this. Continually, consistently, throughout his letters, he's always come back to those three. Faith, love, and the hope of our salvation. The sober life is the life spent in pursuit of faith, hope, and love. It's not enough to turn away from that which intoxicates us. We must put on and pursue these three things. That's how we become sober. For some of us, it may mean weaning ourselves off of entertainment. But not only that, devoting ourselves to prayer, exercising our faith. And maybe you would literally do that. Literally take a time that you would normally spend watching a movie and go pray. For some of us, it may mean weaning ourselves off of shopping or possessions. And not only that, not only that, but it means praying that God would help us understand that God would give us strength to fully comprehend what is the width and length and depth of His love for us in Christ Jesus, as Paul prays in Ephesians 3. How deep is His love for us in His Son? For some of us, it may mean refusing to expect others to satisfy us in ways that only God can satisfy. Not only that, but searching the Scriptures again and again to feed our hope of His soon return. There's definitely a putting off here of those things that intoxicate and lull and those things called faith, love, and the hope of salvation. But it is even more than this. Got to get this. <laughs> it means letting not just your no's, but also your yeses be driven by, the, by Christ's soon return. By, by taking that day and ordering your life backwards from that day. By making your priorities, your, your, your choices, your dreams, your aspirations, to let your imagination be fueled and filled out by the glory of that coming day. When I, when I get to that day and I face the Lord, what will my life have been spent for? What will it have meant would have anticipated in the slightest way His coming, that He is truly my life? Or would I, was I a fritterer? <laughs> Did I fritter? Did I waste? How did I spend my life? 
that I spend my life for things that will be destroyed? Did I take refuge in those things that He was coming anyway to destroy? Did I fritter, fritter away my life there? Or did I spend it in anticipation that my life was coming, that it is not here? Let these truths organize and order your life. Now, start there and work your way back. Do it today. Start today. It's never too late. If we do this, some of us will begin to pray the Lord's Prayer for the first time. God, you are a, you are a Father, and I, and I thank you for what you did to, to even make it such that I could, I could address you as Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying in my place. And not only that, you are not only my Father, you are the Sovereign King. You are the Sovereign, Blessed Controller of the universe. So I say, take my life in whatever time you have given me left, whatever fleeting moments you've given me, and gl really glorify yourself in me. Really through my choices, through the ordering of my life, expand your kingdom. Would you, would you be merciful and deign, reach down low and do that through my little life, God? Father, King, would you do that? Your will be done in my life, in the ordering, in the priorities, in the details of my life. Would you do that? So then, God, give me what I need today, and the rest is yours. I will take refuge in you and nowhere else. God, give me grace to do that, though. I find myself so prone to wander, Lord. Give me grace to take refuge in you and in you alone. And you can have the rest. Do with it what you will. Praise your name through it all. Some of us may pray the Lord's Prayer for the first time if we begin to think this way. It'll rock your world. In the best sense of that phrase. <laughs> That's the prayer. That's the life of faith and love and hope. Can you see it? Are you awake? Are you sober? He's coming soon. What are you being spent for? What? Does that day have any bearing right now on how you're being spent? Let it. Christian, you were made for that. That is what you were made for. That is your identity. You were made for nothing else. Well, much of this is internal. It is, it is me. But Paul knows that it is not enough for me to do this myself. The last phrase in this section tells us that. We apply this internally and we apply it externally. This is not an individual life. This life being spent in anticipation of his return. It is a community project. The last verse all but says this. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. An active church member does this. This is what we do. Notice where Paul started and where Paul ends. He starts with a question about eschatology, about the last things. And he ends with, Encourage one another and build one another up. 
We talked about this on New Year's Day, but we'll repeat it again. If you think you know eschatology, but you don't end up here, you don't know it. If a pilot doesn't know how to land the plane and on the right runway, (laughs) is he really a pilot? If we don't end here, we don't actually know what eschatology was meant for. It was meant to feed our hope and to encourage and build one another up. Not in ourselves, but in Him. Not in, not in our own identity, but in the identity we find at the cross. God gave us eschatology as a grace to us, as fuel for us to persevere in faith, love, and hope. And we need each other. We need each other to remind each other of these truths. To be helpfully irritating when we find our our brother or sister uh, being intoxicated by, uh, I don't know, new car or something, you know? Be irritatingly helpful and start talking about the the streets paved with gold in heaven, you know? (laughs) Beautiful car, won't heaven be great? (laughs) Be irritatingly helpful. What does he mean by build each other up? Is this a psychological phrase? Is he talking about self-esteem? You know, you're okay, I'm okay, let's eat. No. No, it's building up one person in and through another person. Not you or me, Jesus Christ. Building up that person in that person. Where are you falling down? Where, where are the wheels coming off for you? Okay. Um, would you mind if I took a few bricks and my, my mortar and my trowel and built you up a bit? My bricks are the truths about Christ and His return. The mortar is the Holy Spirit and the trowel is my prayers for you. Are you stumbling in faith? Here's, here's a brick about the faithfulness of Christ. Here are his promises. Let me remind you of his promises that he is coming back soon and he is not coming with wrath for you. He is coming back for you, to save you. He is faithful and he will do it, brother, sister. Are you falling down in hope? Here's a brick about what happens when Christ returns. He's coming to give you life. That what you're going through right now, that's robbing you of hope, this is not God's wrath upon you. God is still sovereign. He is still king. He has given you His Son. How will He not also with Him give you all things? Romans 8.32 Yes, you, you are going through a terrible trial. But God the Father is well pleased with you. Well pleased with you. No less now because of your trial. And your elder brother, Jesus, is praying for you constantly. And the Holy Spirit is more with you than you know. Are you falling down in love? Do you doubt the love of God first? Just let me pray for you, just how Paul prays for us in Ephesians 3. Let me devote myself to prayer for you, day in and day out, that you would really be given strength by Him to comprehend that love. And let me gently remind you that God has already done the biggest thing for you. He has already given you His Son. Well, I want to suggest today one practical way that we can perhaps do this um, through our gospel communities. 
And it's something that we're, we're giving the name Fight Club. I don't, uh, someone told me about a movie with that name, so maybe that name's not the best, uh, best one to use. I got that from another church, but, um, a fight club where a few people from a gospel community get together, agree to meet together for the purpose of throwing off that which intoxicates them, that which lulls them to sleep in this life. But not only that, to lock arms together and to fight, to strive together for faith, love, and the hope of our salvation. So perhaps one Wednesday morning, these three brothers would get together. Maybe uh, one of the brothers would come the next time and give a summary of Psalm 51, of what it looked like for David to repent of his sexual sin. But then the other two brothers would come with passages about hope, passages about what it will look like that day. Just let their imagination run. And each week they will do this in week in and week out to strengthen each other, to encourage one another, to build each other up in the faithfulness of Christ and the love of God in Christ and that sure, certain hope to build up that hope so it truly would be certain in each other that we would be driven by this hope for salvation, not in the hope that I hope my problem goes away, I hope that guy at work stops bugging me, but in the hope of his soon return. They would talk about faith, how they can trust God and that He is giving us all things in Christ Jesus so that we don't have to seek this other thing. How we're free to obey. Or that our hope in His return means no wrath. Even for the sins I've committed that day. Brother, you don't have to cover over your bad feelings about that sin with this sin. You are free. You are free to live the life you were transformed to live. Let me help you with that. We need each other for this. Paul understood this. He comes back to this over and over and over again. We need each other. This is not a solitary task. And I encourage you, if you are operating solitarily in this fight, you are missing out. You are a soldier wandering off from your unit all by yourself in enemy territory. Go back to the unit. Get involved in a gospel community. Get involved in a Bible study. Get with other brothers and sisters and lock arms together. Encourage one another and build one another up in the faithfulness, love, and the hope of salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. Don't wait. Do this. I say this for your benefit. I say this for your good. Because this is the way God designed it. This is the way God designed your life. Coming in this morning, I was... Uh, you ever gotten up early and looked over at the western mountains when the sun is just coming up? Beautiful reds, pinks, oranges, yellows. Striking. It'll stop you in your tracks. Christ's coming. A new day has dawned. And there is a new day coming. This day is darkness. We are children of that day. We are children of light. That light is coming, and it is coming very soon. Brother, sister, live your life the way it was meant, the way you were transformed to be lived in anticipation of that day. Remember what is going to happen on that day. 
Not only that, remember who you are. Remember your new identity in Christ, that you have been united with him. And therefore, live the life you were transformed to live. And make use of the graces that he has given you to live that life. This room is full of them. This book is full of them. In Christ, we have all of them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come soon. Come soon. You are our life. Come soon. Forgive us those ways where we take refuge in other things. I pray that um, you would bring grace and mercy to any of us today who have been convicted of those places and ways where we are seeking to self-medicate ourselves in the trials and troubles of this world instead of turning to you, instead of taking hope in that certain day when you come and you bring us real life. And I thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us, those of us who have trusted in you. What a day that will be. Lord Jesus, I, I pray, fill us, fill our imaginations with that day. Give us a vital, anticip, vital anticipation of that day. Reorder us, reshape us, blow us up, restructure our lives such that they're driven by that day and lived out in a joyful but sober anticipation of that day. You are our life. We praise you and we thank you. Just because you are who you are and you do what you do. We praise your name and it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.